Welcome to the first in the Gas and LNG Insights podcast series produced by NGW in partnership with RBAC. RBAC is the market leading supplier of global and regional gas and LNG market, lead, uh, market simulation systems. These systems provide industry analysts powerful tools for supporting investment and M&A strategy, environmental and sustainability goals, credible risk analysis, trading strategy, and policy development and assessment. Today, it is great to be joined by RBAC's CEO, Dr. Robert Brooks. Dr. Brooks founded RBAC in 1987, based on experience developing several well-respected predictive models for government and industry. He designed the first gas transportation model while getting his PhD at MIT and has led the industry ever since. The subject today is one that has held many headlines over the past two years, at least in the energy sector, Russian natural gas supply, and in particular, the country's LNG trade. Dr. Brooks, welcome. Well, thank you very much. That was a very kind introduction and I'm very happy to be here. Uh, uh, on the uh, uh, first uh, Natural Gas World podcast. Great to have you here. Uh, to get our listeners and viewers all on the same page, um, let's set the ground. How significant a player is Russia in the LNG market? Um, around how much does it export and where do those supplies go? Well, um, <clears throat> LNG exports out of uh, Russia have been growing uh, significantly uh, over the past um, uh, 10, 15 years. It basically started uh, at a facility in uh, Asia and Sakhalin Island uh, with uh, some offshore supplies there, uh, which were uh, made into LNG and uh, primarily uh, delivered to Japan, uh, Korea, and uh, and some to China, so it was basically in the east. Um, but in the mid uh, 2010s, so like around 2017 or 2018, a new facility was opened up in the Russian Arctic area, um, in um, the uh, what's called the Yamal Peninsula, which is, if you look at a Ru Russian map, you would see it uh, very far north, almost in the Arctic. And um, this was a, really an incredible idea. Um, the first facility and, and major export uh, capability that was not owned by Gazprom. Uh, this was owned by another company, a, a private company called Novatech. And you can see uh, the, um, growth of LNG exports, which occurred at that particular time. So you're running around in terms of billions of cubic meters, uh, which is not the same as millions of tons per year, but uh, billions of cubic meters, we were running around 15 uh, BCM out of uh, Sakhalin. And then again, in 2018, you saw this ramp up at the Yamal facility where uh, now you've more than doubled. And in fact, you've got about uh, 25 and even more uh, that is being produced at Yamal. And that has to be delivered over what's called the Northern Sea Route, which is uh, uh, you know, very far north in, in essentially the Arctic Circle. And it can be delivered either eastward or westward. So it can be delivered 
westward towards Europe and other parts of the world or it could be delivered uh, eastward toward Asia. Uh, the only problem is that this is uh, an area which is largely iced over in various parts of the um, of the calendar. And in fact, the eastward route is actually only open now four months a year. So when they when Yamal <coughs> LNG is destined for Asia during the alternate months, when the eastern route is not open, it, LNG actually has to flow westward uh, and basically almost all around the globe to get to Asia, which is a problem. <clears throat> so it, it's an interesting project. Uh, it's very low cost LNG. Uh, the government has given you uh, Novatech uh, tax breaks to make it uh, very competitive, uh, but it, it has some real issues as far as uh, delivery to market uh, just due to its geography. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. I mean, looking at that graph um, with the launch of Yamaha LNG, you've had a very, you know, big big increase very quickly in in Russian LNG capacity. Um, in the last two years, we've seen the opposite happen with Russian pipeline gas to Europe, um, which is, of course, uh, Russia's main gas export business by far. Um, so even though that's happened, um, LNG flow, Russian LNG flow to Europe has remained strong despite the uh, political climate. But there is a risk of further cuts um, to pipeline gas or LNG or, or both. Uh, whether politically motivated or or otherwise, um, can you walk me through RBAC's scenarios uh, for if these supplies are cut, um, the impact on on you know volumes on the European markets, uh, pricing? Walk me through them. Um, yes, um, you know we have uh, taken a look at this, and you're totally right, uh, uh, Joe. The uh, volumes. Um, that have been flowing into uh, Europe uh, from Russia on pipeline have uh, actually declined enormously. And actually, I think we have a chart here that uh, shows the pipeline flows. Uh, and these are all exports out of Russia. You can see the blue line is, uh, well, the orange line is total exports out of Russia, again, in billions of cubic meters per year. The blue line is uh, uh, flows into Europe uh, the green line is flows into Central Asia, and you know so this includes, um, uh, you know, uh, Turk, uh, Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan and and so forth. And then you can see this gray uh, line starting uh, just barely starting in 2019 and gr growing rapidly, but still quite small. Uh, which is flows uh, into China on the power of Siberia 2 pipeline. Now note that this chart, just like the other one, you know, has actual data through 2022 as reported by uh, BP and Energy Institute. Uh, 2023 has passed and so the data is not totally available, but we've used uh, best sources to try to get uh, a correct estimate of what those flows were. And then 2024 and 25 are uh, forecast from uh, various sources as to how things are going to uh, play out in the future. So you can see um, more Russian gas on the uh, power of Siberia 2 going to China, the gray line. 
uh, basically uh, the same uh, flat as far as CIS. Uh, but you can see uh, continued uh, reduction in flows to Europe, uh, primarily across the Ukraine. Uh, Russia also has another pathway into Europe, which goes uh, south uh, through the Black Sea, uh, Turkey, and then in uh, Southeast Europe. And, you know, there's quite a lot of flow actually into uh, Turkey, which is in at least in some um, uh, data sources is considered to be part of Europe. And, and so yeah. that's what we've done here. And uh, but anyway, um, you can see there's actually a couple of uh, interesting things here. You know, one is that there's a reduction in 2019 to 2020 on the blue line. You can see that. And this is um, primarily due to a new agreement which took effect in 2020 uh, regarding uh, gas transit across Ukraine. Uh, Russia and Ukraine have had problems for many, many years. And so the new transit agreement was quite a bit lower than uh, what the volumes were in the agreement was prior uh, to uh, 2019. You know, plus you also had the beginning of COVID and so forth in, in 2020 and 2021. But the major uh, decline, of course, is due to the war between Russia and Ukraine. And you can see that in the data going from 2022 and 2023. Okay, and um, if there's a further cut in this in this pipeline supply or LNG, um, you know, it, it remains to be seen regarding LNG whether Russia would take such a step. Um, on an EU level, they've talked about curtailing Russian LNG or you know, various EU member states have, have um, talked about it individually. Um, what would be the impact on the European market, which has seen unprecedented volatility over the past two years already? Well, I think um, it might be a little bit surprising. I think we have a chart here um, that shows uh, a scenario that we have run using our model. Uh, which looks at what would the price be at the major pricing point uh, in Europe, which is called TTF. And uh, this is uh, in uh, the Netherlands, so it's in the in far Western Europe. Uh, but it's indicative and it is the um, really the um, major trading uh, hub uh, for natural gas in Europe at this point. Now you can see that, you know, when you go from 2025 uh, down to 26, 27, 28, uh, prices are coming down a lot in all different scenarios. And I think this is largely due to two factors. Number one is that you do have uh, a reduction in demand or consumption of natural gas in Europe, which has been uh, part of governmental policy uh, as far as the energy transition is concerned. Uh, but it also is an indication that the, the people of Europe are willing to conserve uh, energy, uh, you know, in times of crisis. Uh, so they showed that over the last couple of winters and, uh, you know, energy demand, you know, went down, you know, substantially. You do get a price effect here going on as far as electricity is concerned because electricity prices are up. And so that's another uh, effect on conservation. But anyway, regarding the specific point, if you look at three scenarios, the first one is uh, sort of the base case. And uh, 
these colors, unfortunately, they don't differentiate that well. But uh, the base case, as you can see, is the highest price. And um, then, you know, what, um, I'm sorry, is the, the lowest price. Yeah, and then you yeah. can see if, if you keep Russian LNG from flowing into Europe, uh, then you get a price impact, which is the middle point. And then if you also uh, reduce uh, the pipeline gas through Ukraine, you know, down to zero so that at the end of 2024, which is when the contract expires, the current contract expires, if Russia and Ukraine decide uh, together that they can't um, make a new deal and therefore they're going to cut off the remaining gas that's flowing through Ukraine, uh, then you would get the, the one that's the highest price uh, impact. Mm -hmm. But the, I think the main thing to point out is that if you look at the spread between these, it's not very high. Uh, so, you know, there is some price impact, you know, in 2025, you get like maybe almost a dollar or you know, 75 cents U.S. Uh, per million BTU uh, impact. But over time, you know, gets smaller and smaller as demand in Europe uh, declines. Now it does, all the prices kind of rise in the longer run, I think as supplies are harder to, to get at low prices, but still the spread is relatively minor. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think there's implications for this. Number one is, uh, you know, first of all, I think, you know, Europe um, has proven, you know, that it can adjust its, its um, market behavior uh, under circumstances that are really very tough. Uh, I mean, you went from a situation where Russia was delivering over 200 BCM per year of gas into Europe to a situation where, you know, it's down to, um, you know, quite a bit less than that, less than 100, even counting uh, the flows into Turkey and so forth. So it, it has, and, and it will go even lower than that. So they've been, um, I think, you know, very good about that. Uh, but you have to ask the question, well, you know, what's going to happen to all of that Russian gas? Because, you know, the, Russia is still uh, the largest uh, resource base of natural gas in the world is in Russia. Mm -hmm. But Russia is also a huge country, as we know. I mean, it's what, 10 or 11 time zones. I mean, it's like uh, incredible. Uh, so the point is that, um, you know, some of these resources are hard to get to market. You know, they're very remote. And even though they've proven uh, that they can do this from the Arctic Circle area around uh, Yamal area, uh, Yamal Ninetsk, and, uh, you know, have done this for quite a long time, uh, that primarily has been um, the market that they are primarily aiming at during that entire time has been Europe. Now, if that, Arctic, if that market is removed, you have to ask the question, well, what are, you know, where is it going to go? You know, where can that gas go? And what does the future for Russia look like? Now, everyone always points out China uh, because China is, um, uh, is still the most populous country in the world. Maybe India is about, they're about neck and neck at this point, uh, but it, you know, has a much larger economy than India at this point. So there's a huge economy, a huge uh, population base and a huge requirement for energy in China. Now, Russia has a, a long border with China, and um, China, even though it does very well in the sense that it 
produces about 60% of the gas that it ends up consuming, uh, still it needs that other 40%. And that other 40% either has to come by pipeline or has to come by LNG. Uh, so uh, it's a natural market, but you know, there's hard. It's hard to imagine other sort of natural markets that Russia could could aim for. <clears throat> you know, it's also contiguous with Central Asia, but Central Asia has plenty of gas supply itself, uh, so it doesn't really need it. And I think you know, India is a market that is too far removed uh, from Russia directly uh, by pipeline. So you know, it is a market for LNG. Uh, but uh, it's quite a distance from it. So anyway, the point is that, you know, Russia is in kind of a, a, a difficult situation here when it looks at longer term gas strategy. A few years ago, it, it uh, you know, publicly, I think uh, uh, President Putin, uh, you know, announced and, and, you know, his ministers announced that uh, they wanted to become a major global player in LNG, you know, uh, competing against the United States and Qatar and so forth, and maybe 100 million tons per year. Well, it's it's really hard to see how they're going to do this without you know, a, a strong European market and the fact that the supplies uh, that they have for conversion into LNG are located so far away from market. And you know, just to go on just a little bit more, I mean, we've seen this with the, the next uh, Novatech project uh, up in the Arctic, which is uh, called Arctic uh, 2 LNG, uh, which is uh, supposed to be starting up this month, actually. I think their first cargo is supposed to occur either this month or, or soon. Mm-hmm. But um, because of sanctions and so forth, uh, the, a lot of their uh, partners in terms of engineering and construction and offtake uh, have decided to uh, declare force majeure and um, because of the war and sanctions. And so those technologies and those markets are no longer available to them. So it's unclear whether uh, Arctic 2 LNG, which is supposed to be like 20 million ton uh, capacity facility, you know, whether it's going to actually be able to operate anywhere near uh, you know, 100% capacity. Maybe it could get up to 30 or 40 or 50%. But it has the same issues that Mall has in terms of distance from market and difficulty to actually move, you know, tankers uh, to those markets. So mm-hmm. Russia has found itself in a very interesting situation, but a very difficult one. You know, personally, I I think that you know that there's a lot of negotiation around or discussion around a new pipeline and negotiations called <clears throat> Power of Siberia 2, which would actually bring uh, natural gas by pipeline to China through Mongolia. Um, mm-hmm. And this the, the source of the supply would be the Yamal Nenetsk area. So it would be a very, very long pipeline. Um, and you know, I think that you know it would be significant. It's like a 50 BCM capacity pipeline, so it's very significant pipeline. But you know, I think the Chinese are in a better negotiating position, honestly, than than the Russians here, because you know China has set it up, itself up where it has a lot of uh, import capacity for LNG, uh, and it also has a lot of uh, actually even potentially uh, greater capacity. Um, uh, alternative uh, source of 
natural gas by pipeline through uh, Turkmenistan, which has some of the largest reserves on the planet in that small country. Uh, expansion of the Central Asia China pipeline system. So there's a lot of alternatives that uh, China has, a lot of options, and Russia doesn't have too many. It's uh, it's basically China uh, and and domestic. Now that's another thing too. I I think you and I had a little conversation about this. That you know there is some yeah. uh, discussion in in Russia, which I think is very appropriate uh, to use more of the natural gas developing their own economy uh, mm -hmm. and uh, perhaps getting. Uh, doing coal gas uh, power conversions and various other kinds of things because they have the gas supply. Uh, these fields have already been developed uh, up and and their potential is still great. So, you know, using them on their own behalf, even though that doesn't bring in a foreign, you know, capital, uh, still, it could be really good for Russia's own um, industrial, further de industrial development. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of interesting points to pick up there. Um, yeah, so I, I agree that, yeah, Russia has found itself in a very precarious uh, uh, situation, having lost most of its market share in, in Europe. It's trying to find aven new avenues for its um, gas supply wherever it can, really. Um, you know, trying to send some to, as, as you mentioned, Central Asia, but these are very small markets. Um, or relatively, their, their import needs are relatively small. Um, yeah, uh, using more gas uh, domestically, uh, sending more gas to Turkey. But again, the, the, this you know doesn't go anywhere near replacing, uh, well, making up for the for the huge loss in in Europe. And yeah, as you mentioned, China one option, long term option, um, and you have LNG. Um, I think the issue with China is that um, it, some people might remember that it took a very long time to reach a first gas deal. Um, they finally reached one in 2014 uh, for uh, Russian gas supply to China via power of Siberia. And, you know, that was, that was a, a, at least a decade in, in discussion. And, um, um, it, it could take quite some time um, for another deal to be reached. As, as you mentioned, you know, China is in a better negotiating position and it, it might want to hold out for a better deal as, for, for longer than Russia would want. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, okay. Uh, so one thing that Russia has set as well for, for quite a few years now it's set itself as a uh, strategic priority is the development of the northern sea route um, for gas for oil for various other commodities um, taking advantage of um, global warming which has reduced the amount of you know thick ice up there in the arctic um, what do you think this what do you think the increased um, use of the Northern Sea Route in, in, in terms of a longer navigation uh, season, um, what kind of impact would that have on Russian LNG? Well, I think it, it, it's a very interesting question. And um, 
you know, we're not going to know the results for a while here. But um, yeah, this is uh, something that has been planned, I think, or at least hoped and in, in, in planning has gone into uh, trying to make the Northern Sea Route more accessible uh, to, um, you know, to Russian shipping, not just LNG, but as you said, oil, but also other things too, um, you know, mm -hmm. minerals and materials and so forth and so on. And, um, you know, it, it's hard for us in the United States to really um, understand this because, <clears throat> you know, we have actually, you know, relatively uh, temperate weather, you know, compared to, and, and we don't, you know, have that, uh, you know, kind of issue, except maybe in northern Alaska, uh, where, you know, you have the icing conditions, which make, um, uh, you know, sea bound traffic impossible during certain parts of the year. But mm -hmm. as I mentioned, I think before, uh, maybe I haven't, the northern sea route going on the eastward direction towards Asia. I mean, the reason why it, you know, it, it, it seems like it's great if you look at a globe, because it cuts down the amount of distance that a tanker would have to travel uh, to get to Asia enormously for Russia. Uh, I mean, it is, you know, way, way better. The only trouble is, as you point out, you know, you have thick sea ice. Uh, and only four months out of the year is it open on average. Now, some years it's five, some years it's less and so forth. But on average, I think it's about four months out of the year. Well, that's only a third of the year. So, you know, even though you might have a huge capacity, most of the time you're going to have to send it westward rather than eastward, you know, out of Yamal and out of Arctic uh, 2 LNG. So, you know, Russia has been investing in, uh, it has uh, some of the best icebreakers in the world, uh, nuclear icebreaking uh, uh, vessels. And uh, my understanding is that they're investing in more and, and investing in that technology. Uh, to be able to uh, open uh, to a greater, you know, for a greater length of time, uh, the northern sea route going eastward uh, out of um, the Yamal Peninsula in that area um, more of the year. Now, I, I don't know if they know, if anybody knows, you know, what the potential is uh, there, but uh, I have seen uh, stories where, you know, the, the nuclear icebreakers uh, kind of lead the way. They're kind of the leader of the pack and they get a whole bunch of ships following them. Uh, and that could include LNG, but it could be oil or other, uh, you know, kinds of uh, ships, as I said. And they follow them, you know, on that pathward uh, eastward uh, uh, to, you know, uh, out through um, the Bering Sea and, you know, ultimately, um, you know, to age to markets in China uh, and other markets in Asia. Uh, so, you know, I have done a an analysis, assuming I think a really optimistic uh, scenario. Uh, but the optimistic scenario would be that you know further development of those nuclear icebreakers, plus whatever happens naturally, uh, opens up the northern sea route going eastward. Um, over a period of time so that by 2030, so basically in uh, six years or six and a half years, uh, it's essentially open 12 months a year. So it's essentially open all the time. And uh, so actually, I think we've got a chart here, you know, which shows the difference in 
LNG uh, deliveries uh, from Russia to China under those two scenarios. So you can see the blue line is sort of the, the normal, if you will. Uh, this is uh, traffic that is moving uh, during those four months over to Asia, uh, plus any uh, traffic that is going westward on the northern sea route and then going most of the way around the world to Asia, which you know there's mm -hmm. uh, a fair amount of traffic that goes that way. But you can see then if you uh, also assume uh, that you're starting to open up the northern sea route, uh, uh, you know, the red line, you can see it more than doubles the amount of LNG which would flow that direction. Well, of course, uh, if that direction is available, you wouldn't use the westbound route anymore. You would only use the eastbound route to get to China. So a lot of the contracts uh, that exist right now, um, China and Japan both invest uh, in Arctic uh, 2 LNG annual. Uh, so they would be getting uh, their uh, LNG, you know, more quickly and in greater volume uh, using that northern sea route. So, I mean, there's some real potential there, uh, which would be uh, overall to uh, Russia's benefit. However, I don't show it in a chart here, but uh, one thing that was sort of interesting to me, the overall sum of all Russian LNG flows does not actually increase very much. Okay, so it's more a displacement of movements uh, that would be occurring westbound um, uh, towards Europe, uh, Latin America, Africa, Middle East, and so forth. Those are being displaced to go directly to Asia. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so that's, that's all, all very interesting. Um, there's another little interesting thing, if, if we've got time here, I would say, you know, it's a very smart thing that, um, that the Russians and Novatech have, have done. Uh, which is that uh, they realize that, you know, right now and over the past few years, uh, they have had to deliver uh, LNG that was bound for China during the off months when the Northern Sea Route was frozen going eastward. They've had to deliver LNG to places in Europe, in Northwest Europe, and then to reload that LNG on other tankers uh, and head south, you know, through the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal and then down from the Suez Canal over to Asia. Um, so again, it's very costly and uh, time consuming to go that particular route, but you also have to go through Europe to do that. So they have this other idea, which is to build a reloading uh, capability within Russian territory. And so they actually have something that uh, has been put into place, and I'm not sure it's totally operational yet, but it's supposed to be operational soon, if not already, uh, offshore Murmansk. So uh, this is in the far western reach of uh, northern Russia, Murmansk, uh, before it, um, uh, you know, before it goes into the Scandinavian countries, I think it's, I think it's Norway. Um, and, um, you know, it, it will be able, uh, essentially, it does two things. Number one is it brings the whole traffic under its own, own control because you can take that westbound LNG, reload it into regular tankers and send it anywhere in the world. But besides that, remember that, and I didn't mention this before, but uh, out of uh, Sabeta, which is the port that is used for uh, Russian LNG out of Yamal, uh, 
they have to use specialized tankers because even though you know the ice is passable it's still there's still ice so they have to use a special kind of uh, lng tanker called an arc 7 uh, and it's very um, it's much more expensive than a regular tanker and so moving an arc 7 all the way around the world i've heard that they've gone all the way to europe uh, i mean all the way to india uh, is really you know not the way to go but also moving it to northwest europe and then having to go back you know, to Yamal is not very efficient. But if you only have to take it to Murmansk and then go back and put a, a regular tanker from Murmansk to your markets, then that is much, uh, you know, much more efficient use of those ARC-7 uh, specialized tankers. The same thing is true on the eastbound path uh, where they're setting up something that's quite similar off the um, uh, coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula. Kamchatka. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that would be the same thing. Instead of having to take an ARC-7 during those four or five months or six months or whatever, instead of having it take it all the way to China or Japan or, or Korea, uh, what you can do is only take it to Kamchatka and send it back home empty and then take a regular uh, tanker from Kamchatka uh, to the market. So that's a more efficient use of their resources and will keep costs down as well. So I think those are great ideas. Um, and I think Novatech and and uh, Russia, you know, are you know certainly you know should be admired for their uh, you know for their uh, intelligence and in how they're able to actually work with this LN, uh, natural gas in the northern you know Arctic areas and convert it to LNG and move it efficiently around the world. Uh, it's just the uh, geopolitical issues that have made things tough. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much, Dr. Brooks, for your for your insight. Uh, to finish off, I'd just like to kind of get your kind of summary view of um, the outlook for Russian LNG. I, I mean, in your last graph, you you didn't see much growth potential in the actual export levels. It was it was more about where where the where the LNG is going. Um, you know, train one of uh, Arctic LNG two should be on should be shipping out cargoes this month. Um, a lot greater uncertainty about its second and third cargoes. Novatech has a string of other projects in in the works, and there's the, ga- the gas reserves are there to underpin them. But because of the sanctions, because of a lack of technology, um, it, it, it's a very difficult uh, it's a, it's a very difficult subject to 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 really know what to expect from. But you know, what's kind of your summary projection for the you know what 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 does what does fate have in store for russian lng well you know one thing that i've learned in in doing the uh, these kind of simulations and analysis and you know perhaps also one reason why uh we uh, we don't see if the uh, northern sea route eastbound is opened up that um, you know, we just get a shift in Russian LNG instead of a major increase, is that, again, it's still, you know, out of the Arctic, it's still pretty marginal and pretty inexpensive, or pretty expensive compared to alternatives. You know, the, the other problem that Russia has is that other alternatives are being built up at the same time that it wants to build up its capacity. Right. So it's not, you know, that they're the only game in town. And, uh, you know, the United States, of course, has um, 
so much uh, natural gas potential and and um, uh, you know in, in its uh, sort of um, a different uh, structure for the market you know has managed to move into first place on LNG exports after only seven years of, of mm -hmm. I mean being passed only started up in 2016 uh, so um, but there's much there's even way more projects that are planned for the united states that may or may not happen uh, at the same time cutter is expanding its capacity from 77 million tons a year to 126 million tons a year mm -hmm. i mean that's a lot you know that's almost 50 million tons uh, additional capacity uh and you know they are geographically you know in a really good position plus it's really uh, cheap gaps uh, so, you know, they're in a really good position. Uh, and then we have, uh, of course, Mozambique and uh, Tanzania. Uh, Mozambique much farther along, but also uh, potentially uh, LNG projects out of both Mozambique and uh, Tanzania in the southeast um, part of Africa, which are exceedingly well positioned to deliver LNG to India, you know, where natural gas demand is growing uh, enormously. Uh, not to mention Pakistan and Bangladesh, where it's also very strong. So, um, so there's, um, you know, the um, the tides are coming in. There, you know, whatever the the right terminology is here, mm -hmm. as far as Russia is concerned, you know, greater and greater competition at the same time that they would like to develop their own uh, resource base and and make it available to the world. Uh, so. You know, in the end, I think it's uh, if a resolution to the uh, situation uh, in Ukraine can uh, can be, you know, uh, come about soon. I think that's better for everybody, um, not just Ukraine and Russia, uh, the rest of the world. But, you know, I think particularly for Russia, actually, you know, uh, because uh, geopolitical factors uh, such as that, uh, you know, are really strong impediments to um, to making uh, progress in the, in the world economy. Um, there's other things that are going on right now that are also big impediments, as we know, in the Middle East. And uh, there are, you know, groups that are trying to uh, make it, you know, sort of business as usual, difficult or impossible. Uh, most LNG right now is not going to flow through the Suez Canal because it has to go through the Red Sea. And uh, cargoes have already been attacked in the Red Sea, as we know, in the southern part of the Red Sea. Uh, so uh, this means that those cargoes are going around Africa, which is a much uh, longer route rather than going through the Suez Canal. Uh, so, um, you know, the other thing I, I think that's really important and one reason why you see what we see in, in our models is that um, when you look at, you know, basically the way that these models work is that if a contract is in place, a supply, um, uh, you know, contract and SPA is, is actually in force and has been achieved, then almost undoubtedly most of that or all of that is going to flow in the model mm -hmm. and in the real world, it's going to flow. Uh, so, you know, sometimes these are not really economic in some regard. If you look at it from a marginal cost basis, you know, it doesn't seem like it's economic, but somehow or other, the two parties have come together. They've made an agreement 
And once that agreement is in place, it's like, it's really solid. So if we, you know, as far as Russia is concerned, if you could see more parties actually committing uh, to offtake agreements, you know, from Yamal LNG2 or from Baltic LNG, or, you know, I think Yamal is totally sold out, but, uh, but these other places, then, you know, then our model results would change, but we don't see those contracts yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, we see a certain volume, uh, but essentially when you start uh, competing um, outside of the contract uh, volumes that have already been committed to, and you're looking at spot LNG, uh, currently Russia is not in very good position. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of the reason why, you know, we don't, uh, we don't get more Russian LNG flowing is because the contract volumes haven't changed in those different scenarios. It's just that if the Northern Sea Route was opened all year round, it would be more efficient. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they could take the more efficient route to Asia rather than the less efficient route. And uh, so that's what we see happening. Um, but, you know, I think these are, you know, these are the learnings that we've had over many years of doing these kinds of analysis. And, and uh, you know, our idea is that, you know, we have been providing tools to people in academia, to government, uh, to industry uh, for uh, many, many years now uh, at RBAC now for more than 25 years. Um, most of our work has gone into North America, but the last several years, you know, we have put into building out our capability on global gas and LNG. Mm-hmm. And our our purpose is to provide the tools that enable these uh, organizations um, uh, to make better decisions in one way or another. Policymakers in government make better decisions and investment decisions in uh, private industry uh, regarding, you know, whether, you know, they should do this thing or that thing, or, you know, where they should invest their money or whatever, you know, those are the reasons why, you know, they um, uh, are currently or might be interested in the kind of uh, software databases and and products that, you know, that RBAC has to offer them. So um, in the end, you know, we think that the LNG market is a very, you know, LNG is very good. You know, we know we run up against, a certain uh, subset of the environmental movement, uh, which thinks that uh, LNG and, and natural gas are are bad for the world, uh, we don't think that. We think that they are very good. That they can uh, that LNG and natural gas can be very useful in helping uh, uh, countries to develop their economies um, where their economies are very poor at this point, like in let's say uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, certain parts of Asia and South America and the Middle East. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity. There's also a lot of opportunity to switch um, uh, out gas for coal uh, in generation of electricity uh, in various parts of the world. It's already happened a lot in the United States, uh, and uh, it could happen elsewhere. I, that's another point that, you know, for Russia, for example, they have a lot of uh, their electricity is produced by coal. It could be produced by natural gas. Uh, so that's a way that they could probably um, invest in something that's going to clean their air to a greater degree. 
as to the whole greenhouse gas issue, you know, uh, I think that there are sort of points in either direction, but I, I think natural gas comes out ahead of coal, you know, very substantially in the end. But none of that is going to happen, you know, as far as development of the economies uh, or the, the role of natural gas and LNG uh, in developing new, uh, better economies in Africa and Asia and elsewhere if LNG is too expensive. Mm -hmm. So this means that it is, uh, I think, you know, the challenge for the natural global natural gas industry and for a global LNG industry is to keep costs as low as possible. And if you can do that, if you can make it affordable, then these countries are going to use it. Uh, but if you can't make it affordable, they're not going to switch. They're going to they're going to go for cheaper coal than they are going to go for LNG. And this is for sure. And they're telling us that. I mean, you know, whether it's at the WEF or EIA or any of these global, you know, it's it's very simple. They're not going to do it, and they're not going to do any of this green stuff if it means that it's going to keep them from developing their economy. Their local economies are going to come first, and so. LNG has a role to play there. Um, RBAC's contribution in that is uh, to provide tools that enable governments and industries uh, to review the possibilities and to come up with strategies and policies that are going to actually be economical, that are going to keep LNG and natural gas cheap enough uh, so that these countries will actually utilize it to a greater degree and uh, enhance the energy transition in that regard, but also help with global economic development where it's most needed. Uh, so those are from, um, you know, from our purpose point of view, that's what RBAC's purpose has been, you know, besides the obvious purpose of, you know, building our business and, you know, getting more customers and so forth. But beyond that, you know, we do have a, a, a more um, global type purpose uh, because we do believe LNG and natural gas have a very important role to play in the world and in economic development. Well, I think it's very interesting work you're doing and uh, thanks once again for joining me in this discussion. Uh, well, thank you, uh, uh, Joe. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak uh, on uh, behalf of Natural Gas World, uh, you know, we've uh, developed a, a, a budding partnership here, and I hope that we find many different ways that we can, uh, you know, work together to, again, achieve the goals that I'm sure that Natural Gas World, you know, has kind of similar goals to what RBAC has. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't exist at all. So, uh, you know, together, um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, we can uh, reach to more, more people and and uh, and have a, a positive effect uh, on the industry and on the world. So thank you very much. Certainly. Um, this has been the first in the Gas and LNG Insights podcast series produced by NGW in partnership with RBAC. Thank you for tuning in, everyone, and see you next time.